All right, church, if you have your Bible, let's open those up to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I did change my mind a little bit, and I think I did that for your benefit uh, in what we are studying this week. I did have uh, verses 1 to 16 on the worship guide. I also had it listed at the top for David, but he only read through verse 8. And uh, the reason for that is I got a little long in verses 1 to 8. And so uh, in order to avoid uh, a subject change and to keep you from being here for an hour and 45 minutes, I decided that I would cut it a little shorter. Uh, So going through verses 1 to 8 this morning, we are at a transition point in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, In the first six chapters, Paul was addressing issues that he had heard from other people about the church. And now in chapter 7, Paul's going to switch his focus and he's going to start responding to some issues and some questions that they had sent to him in advance. There was a letter that had come back from them to Paul. And on that were several issues uh, regarding many different things. Uh, The first one, though, is uh, he's addressing some issues about marriage. Uh, So one of the issues within marriage that he's addressing today in verses 1 through 8 is going to be a pendulum swing all the way to the opposite end of the problem that we saw last week. Uh, For context, if you weren't here last week, we saw where Paul was condemning a misunderstanding of Christian liberty where some of the members of the Corinthian church, they had this mindset that they were free in Christ And that freedom meant that they had all their sins forgiven, past, present, and future, which they're not wrong about. But they took that to mean that they were free to do whatever they wanted. And that's not the case. But with that mindset, they were proclaiming, everything is permissible for me. And some members of the church were having sexual relationships with prostitutes. They believed that their freedom in Christ allowed them to have these explicit relationships with people who were not their spouse. And to address this misunderstanding, uh, Paul provided seven reasons why that thinking was a mistake. So it's not just one thing that's wrong with that idea. Here's seven things for reasons why you should not be engaging in these relationships with prostitutes. Uh, And when it comes to sex... We need to understand three things. God gave us sex for three reasons. The first is partnership, right? Through sex, we have a a one flesh union with someone who we care deeply about. The second is God gives us sex for procreation. God tells us in Genesis 1 that part of our responsibility as his people are to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and to subdue it. And so to do that, originally before sin entered the world, all we had to do was have babies and then we would be fruitful and multiply. Now that sin has entered the world, being fruitful and multiplying requires us to take the gospel into the world. But at the first, it was just simply through procreation. And the last thing that God gives us sex for is for pleasure. Right now, a lot of times we tend to gloss over that. Right? That's not the first thing that we often talk about in church is that God gave us sex for pleasure. But if you have any doubts about that, I highly recommend you go read the, the book of Song of Songs in the Old Testament. If there is any doubt whatsoever that sex is good, that sex is for pleasure, 
Go read that book. Solomon will change your mind as you read that. With that in mind, though, God only gives us one situation where we can enjoy the gift of sex that he has given us, and that is within the confines of a marital relationship between one husband and one wife. And I really hate that I have to be that specific with the, the confines of that, but that's the world that we live in. Right? Sex is only acceptable within marriage relationship between one husband and one wife, and any type of sexual relationship outside of this one flesh relationship between a man and a woman is sinful. Right? That includes lustful thoughts about anyone that isn't our spouse. That includes pornography. That includes polygamy. That includes homosexuality. That includes bestiality. That includes pedophilia. And that includes heterosexual sex before marriage. All of that is sinful. All of that is outside the bounds of sex that God has given to us. And if we engage in any of those things, we are engaging in sinful activity. All of this is condemned by God. Our freedom in Christ does not give us a pass to do anything we want. And Paul makes it clear in several places in the New Testament that sexually immoral people will not inherit the kingdom of God. So if the Corinthians continue to cling to this idea of freedom in Christ and continue to pursue these sexual relationships, it proves that they have no relationship with God. You cannot profess the name of Christ and continue in sexual immorality and there'd be no twinge on your conscience for that. The Holy Spirit dwells within us and there should be a, a little bit of guilt and shame in that driven to push us back into Christ so that we stop the sexual immorality in our life. If we are truly in Christ, then we should have a desire to honor God in our sexuality. With that said, though, it is possible for people to sin by going the opposite direction of what we talked about last week, by abstaining from a sexual relationship with your spouse. Right, so it's almost never a good thing to be at either extreme in, in most things. The one issue that Paul is addressing here this morning that I cut down for this is that there are some people within the church at Corinth that thought that all sexual activity should be avoided. And that includes sex between a married couple. Right? Paul is going to speak in verses 1 to 8 this morning uh, towards that end. And in these verses, he, he's going to point out the flaws in this mindset as well. So there's a lot going on here today. So let's, let's pray and we'll dive in. Father, thank you so much for your word. I'm, I'm so glad that it is efficient and effective for everything that we need in this life. I'm so grateful that we can walk through these books verse by verse and, and you're going to speak to every aspect of our life. Maybe not always giving us every answer that we want, maybe not focusing as deeply as we want, but there is no aspect of our life that your word does not touch. And I pray that we would have a, a heart to hear it, that we would have a desire to shape our life based on what we see in Scripture and instead of trying to shape Scripture around what we want in our life. So as we dive deeply into Paul's words here today to the church in Corinth, I pray that we would uh, internalize this as well. We love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. Now, we're going to jump around just a little bit 
All right, just I want to give you a heads up of where we're going. We're going to go verse 1, we're going to go verse 8 and 9, and then we're going to jump back to verse 2, and we're going to go through there. I just don't want you to get confused. Right? Looking at verse 1, Paul brings this to this topic. He says here, Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So again, he's quoting the Corinthians here. Uh, and you may have noticed that this is not a question. Right? They're not asking, is it okay for men to have sex with women? They're saying it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So some people within the Corinthian church are as sure about completely abstaining from sex, even sex within marriage, uh, as the others are completely sure that they are free to have as much sex as they want with whoever they want. Right? There's no question here. They just think that this is right. They think that it's true. And both of these extremes are wrong. This is not how God expects sex to be viewed. Right? But we will see later in this chapter, or, or we will see in this chapter that Paul doesn't completely disagree with this statement either. Right? Some of the Corinthians believe that a man shouldn't have sexual relationship with a woman, and Paul is going to say something that doesn't directly agree with what was said, but regardless, it correlates with their statement. And that's where I want you to jump to verses 8 and 9. If you look at verse 8, Paul speaks to single people and to widows, and he says this, I say to the unmarried and to widows, it is good for them if they remain as I am. At this point in Paul's life, Paul's single. As someone who was training to become a Pharisee, it's highly unlikely that Paul was always single. In Jewish culture, they put a high emphasis on marriage, and the expectation would be that one of their religious leaders would be married. So that would, be, would have been an expectation. So Paul probably had a wife at one point, and most scholars believe that she probably passed away, and instead of remarrying, Paul chose to be single. And here in verse 8, Paul's saying it's good for someone to be single. And he wishes that everyone would be as he is. Later in the chapter, he's going to give his reasons for this, and it, it, it's because it provides more opportunities to serve the Lord but by touting the benefits of being single, Paul is essentially saying that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman because sex is designed to be experienced in a marriage between one man and one woman. So no, set, no marriage, no sex. Therefore, Paul agrees with the statement. Did y'all track with that? Does that make sense? All right. Uh, Paul also knows two things about human nature. Well, number one, there's nothing wrong with sex within marriage. Paul Absolutely agrees with that. That is where God designed it to be enjoyed. And that is where people should be in, engaging in sexual activity. And two, not many people are capable of abstaining from sex. And therefore, if self-control is not an option, then it's better for those people to get married and have sex rather than burn with desire, which will likely lead to sexual immorality. That's what Paul says in verse 9 where he says, but if they do not have self-control, and that's not, that's not a dig, okay? That's not, you know, if you, if you look at someone and say, you need to control yourself, like that, that tends to be a, a downgrading of that person, right? You're saying that what you're doing is wrong. It's not, it's not wrong to have sexual desire, but Paul's saying here, if you can't control that sexual desire, if it's outside of your ability, so to speak, then it's better that you should marry than that you should burn with that sexual desire. And then he, let's jump back to verses 2 and 3. 
where Paul then says, but because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with, with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. So Paul here is saying that not everyone is capable of abstaining from sex for their whole life. In verse 7, Paul lets us know, generally, only those with the gift of singleness are capable of it, and most people do not have that gift. Most people are going to have sexual desires that they want fulfilled, and the only place that this can be done within the will of God is in the covenant of marriage. And so to avoid the pitfalls of sexual immorality, it's important for a married couple to have sex on a regular basis. As one part of a marital couple, Paul says in verses 2 and 3 that we have a duty. We have a responsibility to meet some of the sexual desires of our spouse. Now, with the language that I'm using, I admit that I am tiptoeing around this a little bit because I know for a fact that in every marriage there's one spouse, who is usually the husband, who wants sex more frequently than the other spouse, who is usually the wife. That's a generalization, right? It's not always the case, but I would say that for a majority uh, of the world's marital relationships across time and space, that's going to be the truth, typically. Uh, not in every case, but in most of them. And Paul is going to say that it is the responsibility of both spouses to try to meet the desire. And to emphasize that, in verse 4, Paul says, A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. And with this understanding, when we enter into marriage, we are agreeing with our spouse to give them access to our bodies. Paul says that we give up our right to complete bodily autonomy through the marital covenant. And I know, given the nature of the world that we live in, that to some people, maybe even some people in this room, the idea of that is very scary. It's very scary because a lot of people endure sexual immorality in their past. Things that have been done to them, with them, uh, that causes fear to well up inside them, causes anxiety to well up inside them. And the idea of not having rights over your own body is terrifying because of everything that you have experienced. The thought that your husband or the thought that your wife could demand sex at any time and you're expected to submit to that demand could lock you up in fear. And let me just go ahead and say, if that is anyone in this room, I am very sorry for what has happened in your past. And I pray that you will find freedom in your sexual expression and you will be able to move away from the terror that locks you up. That should never have happened to you. That is sin in the eyes of God, and I don't want you to think that I am pushing you into this with disregard of all of that. And to ease that fear for you, I want to once again point out the importance of context in the Scriptures, and I want to also point out the importance of remembering that nothing stands alone in the Bible. Right? You cannot be one side of this marital relationship and take verse 4 out of context and say, you have no right over your body, your body belongs to me. That's not how the Bible works. 
That's not how the Christian faith works. You do not get to rip verses out of context and utilize them to get what you want. That is sinful behavior that is condemned by the love of God. The entire Bible is the Word of God, and that means that every command and every principle that we find in Scriptures are supposed to be understood in light of the whole thing. None of this stands alone. Paul just said that when we get married, we no longer have rights over our own body. But he also said in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing out of self-ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourself. Everyone should not look to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. So if your husband or if your wife is a believer in Christ, it's expected that they will take into consideration your desire as well. It's not all about this one or that one. It's about both. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 through 7, Paul says, Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. Love is not self-seeking. It is not irritable. And does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And I could keep going on, but I do want to finish this little section here by saying that Jesus says this in John 13, 35, that if we are his disciples, we will be known by our love. It is not a loving thing to put unrealistic expectations on our spouse to meet our sexual desires. Right? There are going to be seasons in life where our sexual activity might be higher than others. There may be seasons in life where we are sick or we're struggling with some physical ailment and we're not able to do that. There may be seasons in our life when we have kids running around everywhere and it's just there's not always an opportunity. And it is not a loving thing for one spouse to look at the other spouse and demand that they rise above whatever they're experiencing, whatever sorrow they're going through, whatever physical ailment that they have going on, however exhausted they may be because of what the day presented to them, and demand their sexual activity. That is not a loving thing to do. So no that losing the rights over your own body in marriage doesn't mean that you're meant to become nothing more than an object of gratification. That is not what God has designed for marriage. That's not what God has designed for sexual activity. It's an unloving thing to demand sex from a spouse who is not up for it in the moment. And God does not call us to be subjected to the insatiable desires with no consideration to what we are experiencing. This is one of the reasons that it's incredibly important to make sure that Christians marry other Christians. There is a commitment in a Christian that states that they're going to strive to be Christ-like. They're going to strive to pour themselves out for your benefit instead of constantly seeking their own good. A believer has the Holy Spirit residing in us. Right? We have the Holy Spirit telling us that this is the right way to love someone, this is the wrong way to love someone, and you need to do it this way. And there will be conviction of sin, and there will be repentance when we inevitably fall out of line. 
That's not to say that we're never going to make, make mistakes. It's not that we're ever going to push when we shouldn't push. But in Christ, there should be a desire for us to build a strong relationship with one another. And when we fail to do that because of our own selfish desires, we seek forgiveness for that. And these are some of the reasons that Paul is going to warn us when we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that it is vital for a Christian not to be unequally yoked in their, in their marriage. That means that a Christian should not marry a non-Christian. And later in this chapter here, Paul is going to address what happens when there are two non-Christians and one of them becomes a Christian and the other one stays a non-believer. But unless we're in that type of relationship, all believers should seek to find relationship with other believers because hopefully you both have the same mindset about sexuality. A follower of Christ should never demand a sexual encounter with our spouse. We should never demand that. If this is happening in your relationship, there is something truly wrong in your relationship. There should be no demands on that. But... Other than being in an abusive situation, Paul says that we need to be sexually available to our spouse on a regular basis. Paul says in verse 5 to 7, he says, Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer, and then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that. And so here Paul reminds us that we have an enemy in Satan that is looking to destroy us individually, and he's looking to destroy our marriage. The reason for that is because Paul knows that Satan knows that our marriage is meant to be a representation to a lost and dying world of Christ's relationship with the church. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 5. If you look at 22 to 33, we're not going to read all of that. Paul explains how the interaction between a husband and wife should go in marriage. A husband is to love his wife like Christ loves the church, and a wife is expected to respect her husband the way that the church respects Christ. And then in verses 31 to 33, he says this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. And so Paul says that Christian marriage is a representation of Christ's relationship with his church. So if Satan can dismantle the marital relationship of two professing believers, he's essentially showing the world that the or he's trying to show the world that the relationship between Christ and his church is weak as well. Now it's not. It's not. We are a bad representation of Christ's relationship to the church. The best we can hope for is to to look like that as much as we can, but we're going to fail in that on a regular basis. But what Paul, or what Satan hopes to connect with that is, if your relationship's not good, then Christ's relationship with you is not good either. And therefore, Paul wants to protect our relationship through regular sexual activity. Regular sexual activity is going to alleviate sexual desire. Maybe not all of it, but it should alleviate a lot of it. Regular sex 
is important to bring a married couple back into the one flesh relationship that was designed for marriage. It is incredibly important. I mean, if someone came to me and, and they said, Chris, I need, I need to talk to you. I feel really disconnected from my spouse. One of the first questions that I would ask is, when was the last time y'all had sex? Well, that's really personal. It's really important. Right? I'm not flippantly asking. I'm asking because it's important. Paul says that this is important. It's important for that connection. It's important for that oneness. And so if you're feeling disconnected, the likelihood is that there has been a gap in that relationship somewhere because the gap in that relationship probably spiritually and emotionally, and because of that, you have pushed apart physically as well. It's, sex is more than just about the pleasure it provides. It's that connection on a spiritual level. And regular sex can help relieve marital tension. Right? When that tension builds up in your relationship, a sexual relationship can help bring you back together. Right? So maybe you're fighting, and then you will find that if you make time for that, you might not be as upset as you were before. But on top of all of that, this can also help people from turning towards sexual sin to relieve their sexual desires. And I can hear it now in, in people who have a desire to justify their own sinful behavior. People point to a lack of sexual relationship and they say, well, if we had more sex... I wouldn't watch porn. Well, if we had more sex, I wouldn't have flirted with that girl at the water cooler at work. If we had more sex, I wouldn't have had to seek that pleasure elsewhere. And I'm not saying in any way, shape, or form that if you have had a, a lack of sexual relationship with your spouse, that if your spouse has been unfaithful in any of those ways, that it's your fault. I am not saying that. It's 100% their fault. If your spouse struggles with a porn addiction, it's not your fault. But if both spouses are not regularly sexually available for one another, there is a weight of responsibility there. Right? Paul says, do not deprive each other from sex for long periods of time unless you are taking a break for the purpose of prayer. When we commit to this relationship, we are committing to be there physically for our spouse. It is sinful for us to deprive our spouse a sexual relationship for long periods of time if we have not agreed upon that in order to pursue after God more faithfully. You'll see here, Paul gives three things that must happen for this to be okay. Right To take this break... Paul provides three things to be mindful of. He says, number one, it must be a mutual agreement. Now, we don't just get to say, hey, I've decided that, you know, for Lent this year, for the next 40 days, I've decided that I'm not going to have sex. Right? That, that's not something, that's not a decision you get to make on your own. That is a decision that should be, that should come together with your spouse so that you can arrive to the same conclusion. That way you can both prepare yourself for that. Because you're going, there's going to be temptation. 
In those moments, Satan is going to try to divide as much as he possibly can when you decide not to be in that relationship with each other on a regular basis. Number two, it must be for a short period of time. And I can assure you that we all have different definitions of the word short, right? That is not an objective term. And so short for one person might be a day. Short for another person might be that 40 days of Lent, right? You guys need to come together with your spouse and define what the word short means, right? And again, it needs to be something that is agreed upon by both people. Make sure you both have the same definition of the word short. And in doing this, because of the danger that this presents by not engaging in sexual activity, it must be for the purpose of pursuing a closer relationship with God through prayer. Now, on top of that, I also want to make concession for things like your health is bad, or maybe it's a situation where you're, you're gone a lot because you're taking care of an elderly parent or something along that nature, right? I remember when, when Kelly and I brought Artem home, he was in the hospital for three weeks. Right? There was just an understanding that life was going to be different for those three weeks. There was just nothing that we could do about that. But we need to be mindful that in times like that, there are going to be temptations that hit our heart. It could be, tempta- it could be sexual temptation like what we've been talking about. It could become bitterness as you know, one spouse is spending more time doing another thing other, rather than being in relationship with us. And so we must guard our hearts in these moments. We must, we must be understanding people all the way around. we got to know that there will be times when this just isn't available. And we need to be okay with that. But if we are going to intentionally do it, it must be through the pursuit of God in prayer. And that's what Paul says must be done. And so to close out today, I wanted to, to throw some questions out because I'm sure that there are a lot of questions out there. Uh, primarily, what do I do if I'm the spouse who wants more sex and my partner desires it less? Well, I, first and foremost, this should be a conversation that you guys are having on a regular basis. Right? Our relationships work because of good communication. Right? And if there is something going on in your relationship that you're not having sex as much as you like then you need to have a conversation with your spouse to see why is that happening, right? Maybe it's fatigue. Maybe it's something physical. Maybe it's uh, anxiety, right? Again, you know, you should know all of this stuff about your spouse, I, I would hope, but there might be something going on from their past that needs to be addressed in the present so that you guys can have a good sexual relationship. Maybe that's the case. You know, for, for me personally, I got to clean up the house. I got to take, I got to take some things off of Kelly's plate. She's got a lot going on. And at the end of the day, she's exhausted. Right? So if I'm sitting here going, all right, would enjoy some quality time tonight. And she's like, nah, dude, nah, I've been touched a thousand times today. It's not happening. Right? Things have to be done in order to make sure that she's comfortable, that she's well-rested, right? Y'all laugh, 
It's a reality. It might be that you are a punk and not engaging in an emotional relationship with your spouse. It might be the fact that you are using them as an object for sexual gratification. You're not doing the things that are necessary to make that, that person feel loved and cherished and adored. And if that's the case, then you need to repent and you need to pursue after your spouse's heart. This is not just a physical relationship. It's an emotional relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. And then it's a physical relationship. Now, what about those who are the ones on the other side of that? You're the spouse that is saying, not tonight, dear. Not interested tonight, dear. It's going to be a little bit, it's going to be a shorter, short time later, dear. And your spouse is going, define short. We need to, remember what Chris said, we need to define what short means. If you are that spouse in your relationship, you need to search your heart to see what exactly it is that's going on in your life that makes you not want to regularly engage in sexual activity with your spouse. And then you need to communicate that. You need to, to, to take some initiative in that as well. If you're constantly being hounded by your spouse because you are sexually unavailable, then you need to be the one to do some introspection and see what's going on. And then if it's something that is you specific, you need to address that yourself. And if it's something, for example, let's say there is that trauma in, in the past, then you need to be willing to do what you need to do to heal some of that hurt. And look, I, again, I'm not saying that flippantly. I'm not saying that this is going to be, okay, well, I made a phone call, and now all this is over. I'm saying you need to be willing to do what's necessary to get that out of your life as much as possible. But one way or the other, no matter which side of this we're on, we need to be people who are engaging regularly in sexual activity with our spouse because we love them. We want to protect the marriage. We want to protect the heart of the person on the other side of the bedroom. We need to be pursuing after this, except for in short moments when we're trying to get after Jesus instead of being in that sexual relationship. Now, I don't know all of your stories, but I am willing to help in any way I can if there is some of that trauma that you need to work through, if there's marital strife that you guys need to work through, I'm here for you. More than willing to sit down and talk that stuff out with you. I love you guys. I want to see your marriage flourish. I want to see people holding hands and laughing and enjoying one another in all aspects of your life. And this is going to be an important one. And I can assure you, if there is trouble in this aspect of your life, it is probably because there are other troubles that need to be addressed. And we can address those together. And I know that, like, oh gosh, well, how do I talk about sex with my pastor? Who else are you going to talk about it with? Right? God gave it to us. Right? I've read the Bible. I can tell you exactly what God says about it. And I'm not embarrassed. I, I know you might be, but I'm not. So I'm willing to endure your embarrassment if you are willing to sit and chat with me about it because I want to see every marriage in this church thrive. And that is possible if we'll pursue after the Lord together.
Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the gift that you have given us in sex. I'm grateful that you have shown us the, the way to keep that physical relationship healthy within the confines of marriage. I pray that we would push aside all the worldly nonsense that says that sex should be open and free uh, without constraint. I pray that we would realize that what we see with our eyes, what we hear with our ears, and what we uh, do with our bodies, it matters. And so Lord, I pray that we would have a desire to be open in our relationship with our spouse so that we can enjoy one another's bodies. I pray that we would have a proper understanding of sex. I pray that we would have healing for any past hurt or trauma. And Lord, I pray that we would seek repentance for any sins that we are continually engaging in. We know that you are faithful to forgive anything that we are willing to repent. So Lord, I pray that we would be mindful of the devastation that sexual sin can bring into our life and help us to free ourselves from it. Lord, you've already broken the chains. Now we just have to let go of our grip on it. So Lord, I pray that that would be the desire of every single person here in this church. I pray that our marriages would bring so much glory to the watching world. They would see Christ's love for his church and how we love our spouse. Or we would see the respect that the church has for Jesus in how we respect our spouse. Can't do this without the Holy Spirit working in our lives. So I ask that his power would pour out into us here today. And we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen.